Good morning. Please turn in your scripture to Exodus verse, uh, chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 22. Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, I am here. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder, plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Father, it's so good to be at your house today. So good to be able to see folks getting baptized. And what a joy it is just to consider that uh, we get to receive your word. 
a gift from you to us. And so today we want to just clear the, uh, the palate of our minds and just rest and intake this revealed word from you. And we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher today. I pray that you especially would help me to get English words around concepts that are so huge, so glorious, so infinite that it's overwhelming. And Lord, I just want to be a help to uh, my people today, and I want to honor you with this passage. And so I pray that you would intersect those two realities today in our time in this word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're in Exodus 3, and I would argue that Exodus 3 is probably one of the more famous passages in the book of Exodus. It's the story, as we heard, of the burning bush. For some of you who grew up in church, you'll remember Sunday school stories that talked about the moment when Moses saw this burning bush and then took off his sandals because the place that he was standing was holy ground. Even if you weren't kind of person that grew up in church, you've probably heard the phrase, a burning bush moment, or you've heard the phrase, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is, is holy. Regardless, this is a really important text, because what we have in Exodus 3 is the unfolding drama of who and what God is. It, it really is, this text is a pivotal point in the book of Exodus, because it shows us this God who hears what he's like. So far, we've seen the darkness of Israel's situation in chapter 1. We saw that uh, Egypt was continually trying to oppress Israel, even then putting them into slavery, eventually even embracing uh, genocide, killing male babies. Then we saw that Moses was born. He was hidden in the Nile. He was adopted by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, grew up as an Egyptian, began to take on uh, affection for his people and then tried to deliver them on his own, in his own strength, and his own power, and that completely backfired, sending him off in the land of Midian, where he met Jethro, married Zipporah, and had a son named Gershom, whose name means, I am a stranger and a sojourner in a foreign land. That's where we are today. The situation, though, in Exodus is not about Moses, and it's not about Israel. Exodus 3 is about God. And what we see in this text today is the unraveling, or not unraveling, the unfolding, the revealing aspect of who and what God is. That essentially, Exodus 3 is about God revealing himself. We we heard this um, attention to God begin in chapter 2 and verse 23. Would you look at that in your Bible? Chapter 2 and verse 23, the attention focuses from off of Israel, and we get a little window into heaven. The text says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we see this this unfolding revelation of who and what God is and what he is like. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And what we have in chapter 3 is the presentation of what God is like. And we see some things as people who have the New Testament that sound pretty familiar, but you need to know that when Exodus 3 was written and when it was given, these were new concepts about who and what God is and what he's like. 
And today, what I want to do is kind of set the context first for God's revelation of himself, and then spend the bulk of our time just showing you seven different character qualities that are revealed in this burning bush moment. And these character qualities become foundational elements of how we understand even the New Testament and especially the gospel. You'll find here that when God reveals himself, it is both glorious and frightening and redemptive. And you'll find this throughout the Bible, that when God reveals himself, it's always glorious and frightening and redemptive. Even the cross is glorious and frightening and redemptive. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be glorious and frightening and redemptive. And so we see this begin to emerge for the first time in Exodus chapter 3. So first, let's set the context. Before we look at these character qualities of God as as they are revealed to us in Exodus 3, let's get a sense of what's going on here. In verse One, notice that Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Don't miss this. This is a a low point in Moses' life. The book of Genesis, chapter 46, verse 34, tells us that the Egyptians disdained shepherds. And so here is Moses, who is now a shepherd, and he's not even a shepherd of his own sheep. He's a shepherd of Jethro's sheep. So essentially he has fallen from this pinnacle of Egyptian life and, and aristocracy to the lowest of low points. He's now a mere household worker for Jethro. Secondly, verse 1 also tells us that he comes to the west side of the wilderness to Horeb, the mountain of God. This will be a place that Israel will return back to. You know this mountain as Mount Sinai. And so here he is on Mount Sinai, a shepherd whose life has um, gotten to be incredibly depressing. And we learn that the angel of the Lord appears, and we also learn about this burning bush. And, And notice that this is significant moment because it is the first time that God actually speaks in the book of Exodus. Prior to this, you as the reader are aware of God's heart, but this is the first time that God actually intervenes. Look at what the text says. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So notice a couple things here. Don't, don't miss some obvious things. That first, God inhabits a bush. Okay? Now, that, that's significant in, in this sense that, that God does this continually throughout the, the Old and New Testament, that God inhabits things that are earthly and familiar. For instance, when Israel will come back to this mountain, God will inhabit it. He will come down on the mountain. Think also of the tabernacle, the temple. And even think of Jesus. And the Word became, what? Flesh and dwelt among us. This is God's way. He inhabits familiar and earthly elements. Secondly, notice here that God reveals Himself through fire. This this, this bush is on fire. And throughout the Bible, especially in Exodus, we'll see that God expresses His presence. And in theological terms, it's called a theophany. He expresses His presence through the appearance of fire. In Abraham's life, he was a fiery pot making this covenant. In Exodus 13, you'll see that uh, the, the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night protects and guards Israel. In the case of Mount Sinai, when they come back in Exodus 19, the, the mountain will be fiery and full of smoke. 
Ezekiel's vision, Daniel's vision, all have fire as a part of them. But also think of the New Testament. We also see this. Think, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, He comes as tongues of what? Fire. And then think of John's account of Jesus's uh, piercing gaze in the book of Revelation, he has eyes with fire. So this idea of, of, of God revealing himself with, with fire, with purifying fire, is a theme that emerges throughout the Old and New Testament. Then also notice that God appears as the angel of the Lord. That word the is important. It's not an angel, it's the angel of the Lord. This is something special. The, the angel of the Lord is used 67 times throughout the Old Testament, and it only occurs here in the book of Exodus. There's the structure of the Hebrew when it says the angel of the Lord, the way that it's set up means that whenever one word in this structure is specific, then the other word also has to be specific. So the fact that it says the angel of the Lord, that's very specific, means that this angel must also be specific. As well, the way it's set up, if it's that specific, it also means that these two words must share the same qualities. So whatever is true about the Lord must also be true about the angel. Further, if you look at verse 4, you'll see that when Moses talks about this this angel, at first he says the angel of the Lord, but then verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. So he actually drops the name, the angel of the Lord, actually just refers to him as the Lord, which leads me to conclude that this term, the angel of the Lord, actually refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. This is before Jesus took on flesh, in which he served the purposes of the triune Godhead as God's personal presence on the earth. As well, this book, occupied, I think, by the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, it's burning, it's on fire, but it's also supernaturally preserved. And this is the first of many supernatural events that we will see throughout the book of Exodus. God is going to do many signs and wonders, and this is the first of a number of them. So the context is important. In the midst of the wilderness, Moses, while tending his father-in-law's sheep, comes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and it is here that he encounters a supernatural phenomenon, a burning bush. Out of that burning bush, even though it is burning, it's not consumed, the angel of the Lord speaks. This pre-incarnate Christ is here talking to Moses. This is a pretty amazing context. So all of this is then to set up what comes next. This is the context. Then here's the main thing we want to talk about today. It's the character of God that is revealed in this. What follows is the central point of Exodus 3. And really what we have here lays the foundation of what we will see in the New Testament. And really throughout all of the scriptures, including the Old Testament. And it forms the basis of even the concept of future redemption that will come through Jesus. There's at least, probably more, but at least seven character qualities or aspects of what God is like that we need to see. And my aim is that when you leave today, I want you just enamored and more in love with your God. And specifically, I want you unbelievably overwhelmed with the beauty of what God has done for you in Christ. That when you, when you read Exodus, that you can see your own story in Exodus. That like the Israelites were drawn out of Egypt, you've been drawn out of your own slavery, the slavery of sin. 
sin. And Jesus is all over this passage. The gospel is all over this passage. And so when we look at these seven character qualities, I don't just want you to see them intellectually. Well, that's true about God. That's true about God. I want you to be amazed that this is the God who loves you and cares for you, who sent his son for you and has redeemed you. This God is the same God. The same God who you must deal with today, even if you don't know Christ as your Savior. But in Christ, this is the God who has covered you and loved you with inexpressible and eternal love. So these seven character qualities are enormously significant. Here's the first one. In this text, we see the love of God. Now, you might wonder where we see this, but the problem is is that we don't hear what Moses hears When verse 4 says, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. When we read that, we just hear that he said his name twice. But in Hebrew culture and in in, in Semitic culture, when you address someone by his or her name twice, it was a way of expressing endearment, affection, and friendship. And, And we do this a little bit, don't we? I came home and said, Sarah, Sarah, right? If you saw me in the hallway talking to one of our staff guys, and I was like, Bruce, Bruce. You might be like, what's, yeah, I don't know about it. What's up, what's up with that? You guys haven't seen each other in a while, right? Just, so I come home today, Savannah, Savannah, right? So there's, it's just a deeper level of affection. And we see this throughout the, the, um, the Old and New Testament. Think, for instance, when God calls Samuel. He says, Samuel, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3, when, when David's um, wayward and rebellious son Absalom is killed. He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. Jesus, when he's on the cross in Matthew 27, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, on a negative sense, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Jesus' intervention in Paul, but then Saul's life, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So in, in these cases, what's going on here is that there is a, there's an affectionate term connected with the repetition of the name. And what you need to know is that God talked to Moses this way because the, the dominant character quality of God is his love. So it's beautiful. We're going to see some scary things about God in this passage, but as he, as he leads from this bush comes Moses, Moses. When Moses heard his name used this way, he would have known that he was being addressed by somebody who loved him. Friends, this is the, one of the major differences between Christianity and all the religions in the world. People who worship Allah, they, they worship some other version of their idea of God, they are afraid of that God. Because that God doesn't love them. God wants to demand obedience. They live in fear of of their God. If you know Greek mythology, the same thing. These gods are always self-serving and people are really nothing. They mean nothing to them. So the idea of a supernatural sovereign God who is powerful and yet also loving. I mean, just think John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. That's how the Bible begins this beautiful story of redemption, that God moves in love. It's just remarkable. Because typically, supernatural events are not tied to love. They're usually tied to fear. Just an example. You've probably seen the old film, The Wizard of Oz. Remember when Dorothy and her three friends come into the presence of the great Oz? And they see the green smoke and those, uh, you know, that special effects was 
pretty cool back then. Right now, it's pretty cheesy. But you, you see him, who dares come into the presence of the great Oz? And they're all trembling. Why? Because this supernatural experience creates fear. And that's, that's, that's true for most people. Except in the case of Toto, who went and pulled the curtain back, and then you saw who the man, the man really was, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So the, the idea is that these supernatural experiences are supposed to invoke fear, and yet here is what... Moses is certainly afraid, as we'll see in a moment, but God fundamentally addresses him as Moses. Moses, a term of infection and love, for God so loved the world. The second thing that we see here coming right off the notion of this love, is God's holiness. He's not only full of love, He's also holy. Immediately after Moses understands that this bush isn't being burned, even after God calls to him, Moses, Moses, he says, here I am in verse 4, verse 5, then God said, do not come near, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, this is so familiar, but I want to take you back and realize that this is a new concept. God is defining himself as other, as holy, if you will, as dangerous. Why can't Moses come near? Because God is not like him. They're different, and that difference is dangerous. Therefore, Moses can't come any closer. He has to take his shoes off as a symbol that God is superior to him. And what happens here is that Exodus 3 introduces us to this signature quality of God, that being his holiness. And therefore, the reason for the distance is because God is holy. When you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you wonder about all these crazy laws, why are these crazy laws in the Bible? Because they're meant to make a point. And the point is God is holy and you're not. Even in the restrictions that we'll see throughout all of the Old Testament, it is to make the point that God is different. In fact, in Exodus 19, after Israel is delivered from Egypt, they come to the base of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19 and verse 10 records these words, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all of the people. And then he says this, You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So it's designed to communicate God is different. Even the design of the temple and the tabernacle were meant to communicate this. So you have the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And nobody saw the Ark of the Covenant. Just the, the, the high priest and some, some Levites who were in charge of putting a cloth over it and putting poles through it so that then it could be transported. But people never saw the Ark of the Covenant. They never went into the Holy of Holies. In fact, there was only one day out of the entire year that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And then you have the Holy Place, which is outside of the Holy of Holies. And then you have the general court. And most people, unless you were a Levite, they never got into the Holy Place. And only one person ever got into the Holy of Holies. Why is the tabernacle and the temple designed this way? It is to emphasize the point that God is holy and we are not. Even when the high priest went in, on his turban, he had to wear uh, an insignia that said, Holy to the Lord. 
Laws were given so that people would understand God's holiness. Deuteronomy 23:14 says, "Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you or rather to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy that he may not see anything indecent among you and and turn away from you." So all of this is designed to show us something that's really, really important. And if this is like your first Sunday in church in a long time, or you're trying to figure out what what is the Bible all about, this is where it all begins. And this is the fundamental thing that you have to know. It is this, that God's holiness means that He is sinless, He is perfect, He is pure, He is righteous, and therefore He is distant from that which is sinful. He has to be separated from that which is unholy. And that's a problem. That's why hell is real and why it exists. Because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of His creatures. And yet, this is the beauty of what Christ has accomplished. What Jesus did, according to Ephesians 2, says this, But now in Christ, you who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What did Jesus do? He took people who once had to be outside and he now can bring them in because he himself went into the Holy of Holies and laid his own life down as an atonement for sin, making it possible for sinful people and God to dwell together. That's the gospel. And it starts in the book of Exodus. Exodus 3 establishes the problem for which Christ comes to die. Namely, that God is holy and people are not. And Moses learns in this burning bush moment a lesson that every single one of us has to learn. And it is this, that God is holy and human beings are not. And without atonement, God and His holiness are dangerous. God loves you, but He is holy and He is dangerous in that respect. He loves you, but without atonement, His holiness and your sinfulness cannot coexist. It has to be dealt with. And that's what the cross of Christ is all about, which is why Moses hides his face because he is afraid to look at God. So he is full of love. He is also holy. Here's the third thing. So we see God's compassion or His kindness. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. This this verse is filled with emotive and involved terms. I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. So what we have here is the love of God combined with the kindness of God. And these take root in the Hebrew word chesed which is, in in older translations, was rendered as loving kindness. It is the way that God kindly and compassionately keeps His covenant. After 400 years of Israel wondering, God, where are you? Why are we suffering? Why are we struggling? We're, We're in this bondage. God remembers His covenant. He keeps His word. His covenants are irrevocable because His compassions never fail. And you know when you need to know this? You need to know this in the four to five minutes before you actually pass away. You need to know that his compassions never fail, that his covenant of redemption is irrevocable. That moment when you're about to slip from this life into the next, from your earthly existence to seeing your maker, you need to know that the Bible is indeed true 
And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the children of God, even to those that believed in his name. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are promises made in the word. And you have to believe that God, his covenants are irrevocable because his compassions never fail and it matters. It really, really does. And we see it come out in Exodus 3. God keeps his word. Some of you are in the middle of a dark side season. Just wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Exodus 3 tells us that God keeps his word. His covenant is irrevocable. Number four, we see that God is a deliverer. Central to the whole storyline of the book of Exodus is God's ability to deliver his people such that they are then marked by those whom God has pulled out of Egypt. This becomes the defining relationship between Israel and God. When he gives the Ten Commandments, he'll say something like, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. God aims to rescue them, and he plans to bring them into a future land full of blessing and bounty. Look at verse 8 and 9. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. So notice, don't miss this, God says, I have come down to deliver. This is what he did in Exodus. He comes down to deliver. But it's also what God does in Christ. He comes down to deliver. Remember in Jesus' baptism? He's standing in the waters of baptism, which is not like our baptism here. He was baptized with John's baptism, which means he identified with the sinfulness of the world. It was a, a ritual of cleansing, a purification of sorts. And Jesus goes into the waters of John's baptism in order to signify that he's identifying with the ruin of this world, which is why John freaks out and says, no, 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 I shouldn't baptize you. He knows who he is. He's the Lamb of God. You should baptize me. But Jesus says, no, I must be baptized to fulfill all things. What does he mean? I'm going to enter into the brokenness of this world. I'm going to go into the redemptive elements of what it means for this world to to be broken and i'm going to pull be pulled out of them and then make atonement for this broken world in that moment what happens a spirit in the form of a dove comes down and descends on him god speaks and says this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased in that moment a portal of sorts is open god speaks god comes down and anoints jesus for his earthly ministry This idea God comes down, he stoops to deliver. Jesus himself said this in John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so central to God's character is his plan to deliver his people. God, as we know him in the New Testament, is a delivering God. And it starts in Exodus 3. It is who he is. God delivers. Jesus saves. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It all starts in Exodus. 
So he's a deliverer. Next, fifth, he's also present. God reveals his plan to Moses. This means he's He's there with him. Verse 10, he says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God tells Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver my people. And then verse 11, Moses responds by saying, well, who am I? And I don't think, although next week or so, we'll see that Moses kind of falls into this doubting pattern. I don't think that's what's going on here. Instead, I think Moses is experiencing what anyone experiences when they're in God's presence and they realize who and what God is. You you realize who you are, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord. And he said, woe is me, I am ruined. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then notice notice God's response to Moses' statement of, "I, I can't do this, who am I? Notice that God doesn't say, no, you, you can do this. Or, no, you've, you've learned your lesson. Or, you've matured. Those things all have, may have been true, but God doesn't point Moses to Moses. God points Moses back to him. Look at verse 12. But he said, I will be with you. Isn't that great? I will be with you. Same thing he said to Joshua when Moses died and they got to go into the land. He says, I will be with you. I will give you courage. I will give you success. It's the same thing that we hear in Psalm 23. Though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Think then of no wonder it's such a special gift that Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to go away and send you another comforter and we're all personally indwelt with the presence of Christ. It is this comfort, this reality that God is not only one who fights for us but is actually with us. And then think of the name of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, he says you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of these things begin in this wonderful book. And then here's my favorite, number six. He is self-existent. What happens next is the climax of this passage. Moses and God begin the dialogue about what will happen when Moses goes back and talks to the people of Israel. And he says to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And Moses anticipates that these Israelites are going to ask, well, what is his name? Now that that's a curious question, isn't it? What do you mean, what is his name? It's God. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. What, why is he asking that question? Why is it even on the table? Here's why. This is really important because it informs even the next three things that we see in this passage. You need to know that the culture in which the Israelites lived, especially the Egyptian culture, emphasized numerous gods. And these gods were connected to various aspects of nature, which is what we'll see in the ten plagues, that God goes after these gods by virtue of controlling the natural elements that they were supposed to control. So there's no more in-your-face statement to the Egyptians that when you've got the god of the frogs, and he can't even control the frogs, right? And you get in his face, you're the the frog god? Watch this, I own your frogs. And it kind of hurts your credibility a little bit, doesn't it? Think you're the fly god? Look, I own the flies. It kind of takes away the credibility of these so-called gods. Well, in the midst of this, this culture where there were so many gods with so many names, it may have been that either the Israelites began to assimilate this worldview, or they were so used to the idea of many gods that they knew their own god by so many different names, like 
God Most High, God Almighty, the God who sees, the God of Bethel, that they don't know what God should be called. So what he's actually asking is, when I go and tell them that, that, that God has sent me, how are they going to know that you're the real deal? That's what he's asking. And then what God does is in, in his answer is, he doesn't give him a name at first. He responds by simply saying, verse 14, I am who I am. That is not a noun. It's a verb. God doesn't give him a name. Instead, he says, I am. It's the word that means to be. It's the Hebrew word, yah. When we sing hallelujah, we're singing praise to the one who is. So the first thing that God does here is not to give Moses a name, but what he does is he sets himself apart from all of the other so-called gods. Before he ever gives Moses his name, God defines his essence or his character, in effect saying, my name, I am. In other words, I am the sustainer of all that exists. I am the creator of everything. Nothing exists that is. Everything that is flows from me. God is who he is, and that is all that there is. He is everything, and that's what he says when he says, I am who I am. So then, the latter part of verse 14, by now Moses is probably regretting that he's asked this question, right? It's like, uh, mulligan on that one, can I try it again? Verse 14, God restates this concept again with I am, which means that God is unchanging, he's eternal, he is the one who always is, he's always been, he never is dependent upon anything. It means that he is self-existent, that he causes everything to be, and there was never a moment when God wasn't. So the idea is, you're telling me you're going to ask me what my name is in light of all the other gods. These other gods aren't even gods. I'm the only God. I am who I am. I am. He's dependent upon nothing outside of himself. Matthew Henry, commentator on this passage, says, The greatest and best man in the world must say, But by the grace I am what I am. But God says, Absolutely. And it is more than any other creature, man, or angel. I am that I am. Not I am what I am, but I am that I am. And finally, in verse 15, we get the name. So so I am who I am. I am. And then in verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the people Israel, the Lord. There it is. There's his name. He takes a noun form of the verb in Hebrew that means to be and makes his name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so you'll see this in your Bible as capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. This is the sacred name of God. It is rooted in the very essence of who He is. And it simply means that above and beyond everything else in life, God simply and eternally is. That is just so different than us. He is. He's not like us. He's not like the gods of Egypt. He's in a dimension you can't even imagine. God is who He is. Do you have a theology of sleep? You're like, yeah, I like it. So, it's good. Have you ever had this thought? I've had it. Why, why do I have to sleep? If I was God, I would create 
many more hours in a day by having us have to sleep much less. To me, sleep is an enormous waste of time. You're laying there, drool on your face, hair's a mess, horrible smells out of your mouth. I mean, it's just why, why do we have this thing? I mean, you know, there's some commercials like for Vicks and things of that sort of, you know, sleep is beautiful and it's really not. And the reality is, you know why we have sleep as a part of the divine order? To remind us that we are not infinite. You know what I find the older I get? the more sleep I really know that I actually need, right? That I have limits. I can't live in a 24-hour continuous state. I have to stop and pause and go vertical and ugly, right? (laughs) Why? Because I'm human. And there is something humbling about realizing I'm not infinite. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. I'm God And you and all these other gods are not. Finally, he's sovereign. The final character quality we see in Exodus 3, verses 16 and 22, is the sovereignty of God. You know what this term means? It means God's rule, his reign, his controlling of all events. It means that God possesses all power and rules over all things. So what's going on here, church, with the Exodus event is not just about God delivering his people. It's about God making a statement. The Egyptian gods, they're nothing. Pharaoh, he's nothing. You can't stop me. I, am, I reign supreme. The people who, who are a part of my, 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 my chosen race, these Israelites, I, I love them, but I don't love them because they're a special group of people. I didn't set my love on them because they would love me. I set my love on them so that the world could see my glory. That's why he chose them and why he does what he does to Pharaoh. His aim is to make much of his glory. And by the way, that's the exact same reason Christ comes into the world. Not just to rescue sinners from their sin. That is the end game for another, or that is the means rather, to another end. Salvation through Christ is the means by which all the universe marvels that God would redeem sinful human beings. Look at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. So they're not just coming out into a a wilderness land alone. There is coming a day when there will be a future promised land, and as they're coming out, they are going to receive gifts from the Egyptians. The idea is this. They will come out as God's people, destined for a promised land, and they will be richly blessed. Come on, that, that's a softball that all of you can hit, right? They're coming out of bondage to a promised land with great gifts. Do you see it? I mean, if you don't, just listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So throughout Exodus 3, we see this beautiful reality of God revealing what He is like. And then in the New Covenant, in the New Testament through Christ, we see it in its full array. And we see the the, the fully loaded beauty of what is going on. So in light of that, there's there's two things that I want to leave in your heart and mind. And it is this. First, that this God who is in Exodus is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. 
In other words, what's true about God in Exodus 3 is still true today. He's still loving and holy and compassionate. He's still a deliverer. He's still personally present and self-existent and sovereign, which means that he's trustworthy and righteous and 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 he rules over everything. He is still, I am who I am. That hasn't changed. So as we move into the next six to eight weeks in the middle of our country in the election, can you just be reminded that at the end of the day, the real King of Kings and the real Lord of Lords is Jesus, and He's our King. We're citizens of this land. We're citizens of this land, but we are citizens in a whole nother way of another land. So stop freaking out. Seriously. You're, you're, you're acting as if, at times, like you need Jesus to be in Pennsylvania Avenue. I don't want Jesus in Pennsylvania Avenue. I want him to come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and make the whole world his kingdom. Right? Positively, it means that Jesus is still trustworthy. That he's still with his people. That he's a deliverer. It's the same God. But listen to me. There's also a negative side to this. It also means that this God is... Listen to me. He's still holy. Sin cannot come near him. You, you will not be able to be with Him in your sinful condition. You have to be made holy through Christ in order to be with a holy God who describes Himself as I am who I am. So for some of you, Exodus 3 today is not a hopeful chapter. It should scare you to death. Because without atonement... Without a Savior, without the covering of Christ, God's holiness is dangerous. You could come to Christ and receive forgiveness for your sins, but if you just remain in your unrepentant, uncovered condition, you're in trouble. And you know how you know? Because when you do things that are wrong, there's guilt in your soul, and that doesn't come from you. That's a warning sign from a holy God that there is a standard of right and wrong and God sets it, you don't. He's a holy God. Here's the second thing. And that is that while Exodus 3 is wonderful and glorious, it's it's a precursor to what is to come. The greatest display of God's deliverance, the greatest display of God's deliverance was the permanent reconciliation of God and mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Exodus points us to Jesus who called himself I am. No wonder the Pharisees freaked out when he said that. Before Abraham was I am. They're like, whoa. Took up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they knew what that word meant. Jesus knew what that word meant. And yet here is Jesus who is fully God, takes on the penalty of our sin on the cross so that you could be brought near to God. Here's the thing. When you've received Christ and when you die and you stand before God, it is going to be an unbelievable moment as you see His holiness, you feel His love, you understand His majesty, and you know the only reason you can stand in His presence is because somebody else paid your price. Somebody else else gave you a garment of righteousness and wrapped you in it the holiness of god would be a fearful thing if you didn't have a relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords named jesus christ and so as you stand there the beautiful scary reality is god is holy and i am not and thank jesus that i'm covered and hidden in his blood 
there is coming a beautiful day. 1 John 3, when we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And the only reason you'll be able to see Him as He is is because Jesus paid it all. And therefore, all to Him I owe. Think of it, no need to hide our eyes. No need to hide ourselves from the purifying gaze of Jesus. We shall be like Him. We will see Him, the great I Am, who says I Am. And all of it is because of the great Deliverer named Jesus, who saved us not from the bondage of Egypt, but saved us from the bondage of our own sin that made us dangerous in God's presence to ourselves. I am who I am. I deliver. And this deliverance comes through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have pulled us from our wayward condition. And you have made it possible for us to be renewed and redeemed. And today I pray for those who will either hear this message or today in this very room who feel the kind and gracious weight of the disconnect between their own sinfulness and your holiness. And today it is evident and clear. And I pray that you would compel them today to turn to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I need to receive you. And in faith that they would put their trust in you. Father, for those who have made this life an eternally changing decision, but today still have to wrestle under the weight of a broken world and our own depravity, I pray that you'd help us to be reminded that in you there is hope. You keep your covenants, you never fail, and you have brought us near by your Son. So encourage us and motivate us and compel us into the world to be salt and light in light of this beautiful and glorious reality, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. These folks are up here this morning to serve you and pray for you. If there's something going on in your life or something in the spiritual realm that you'd like to talk about, they're here to serve you today, so use them if there's something going on in your life, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.